Hi, entrepreneurs. It's Steph here, and I want to be sure you've had the opportunity to reserve your ticket to our Entrepreneurs Founders Weekend for our Wealth and Wellness Retreat presented by Chase Inc. We will be hosting our event at the Ritz-Carlton in Orlando, Florida from May 3rd to May 5th, and you are definitely going to want to be there with us. This is going to be your opportunity to build relationships with some of the most powerful women in business. And I can share with you firsthand that the best business relationships are formed when we really get together in person. And I just know so much business magic is going to happen when we're all together. From educational panels, networking activities to wellness activations, inspiring keynotes and breakout sessions. This is going to be a weekend you are not going to want to miss. So you can reserve your ticket today over at entrepreneurista.com forward slash founders weekend. We only have a few tickets left, so be sure that you reserve yours today. That's entrepreneurista.com forward slash founders weekend. I cannot wait to see you there. How do you turn one of the most universal experiences in the world into an authentic brand that empowers mothers? That's Jill Koziol's mission, co-founder of Motherly and Mama Pranista herself. Motherly started off as an engaged community for mothers, sharing first-person accounts of their experiences without ever facing judgment. And it has now expanded into books, a podcast, a shop, and a soon-to-launch nursery line. Coming up, you'll hear why mothers make the best entrepreneurs. why finding the right investor can feel like dating, the importance of diversified revenue streams, how Jill continues to thrive as a mom and entrepreneurista while dealing with and navigating a chronic illness, and how COVID-19 has impacted motherly. This is the Entrepreneurista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done and what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Jill, I am so excited to have a conversation with you today. I have known about your company, Motherly, for a few years because as a new mom and when I was trying to get pregnant, I would see your videos on Facebook and on Instagram and people would tag me in them and it has, your company has become this viral sensation. And the reason I reached out to you to have you on the podcast, I was in one of my Instagram holes going through lots of content and I came across you and your story and that you were the founder of Motherly and realized, oh my gosh, we actually have so much in common from you know, both having an MS diagnosis to being a female founder, starting this business, being a new mom. So I am just so honored to talk to you today and learn more about how you started your incredible business. Thank you, Stephanie. I'm so honored to be talking to you. And it is so wonderful. This, this life of entrepreneurship, um, especially as a female founder, can be so lonely sometimes. And so it's so lovely to get to talk to other people that really get it, especially as a mom and someone who's also, of course, you know, facing similar challenges and struggles. Absolutely. So you started Motherly because you realized that there was a need for a platform and you saw this problem and somehow just figured out how to create a solution for it. Can you share a little bit more about what it was like when you came up with the idea for Motherly and how you went about building and scaling this company? 
Absolutely. So Liz, my co-founder, Liz Kennedy and I, we always say that mothers are the best entrepreneurs because of the innovation. We're natural innovators as mothers. We're always finding hacks and solving problems. And so Liz and I had had parallel lives for a while, not really knowing each other, but she actually had the concept to build a brand or media company around motherhood that would really talk to this modern mother in a way that she could understand that didn't feel so outdated and almost cartoonish. And so she called me, we were living in New York at the time, and she called me with the idea and the concept, frankly, not looking for a co-founder, really just someone to bounce ideas off of. One of the best advice we give entrepreneurs now is just go out there talking about your idea, ask questions. And that's what she was doing. But it was, it was as though I'd been struck by lightning on that phone call. It just, everything she was saying so resonated with me. We had this long conversation and I called her 48 hours later with a business plan. And I said, I know you weren't looking for a co-founder, but we have to do this together. And we launched in our, what we now call our alpha six weeks later on Mother's Day. What were you doing at the time that you were able to join her and start this business? Well, like any other marriage, timing matters. Um, We both had our lights on at the right time, as they say. And uh, I had actually just exited my previous business where I had invented, patented, and brought to market a baby goods product called the Swingies. And I had just licensed it to an outdoor adventure company after getting a large purchase order to go into every baby's RS around the country. And so I was really... Well, frankly, my husband wanted me to take a little bit of a break from startup life, but I had that that little bit of a pause between projects. And so the timing was just perfect. What was your vision for Motherly when you first started it? And is it still the same today or have things had to shift and pivot since then? You know, we we look back and realize that we have stayed so true to the North Star of what we were building at Motherly from the very beginning. Liz Liz comes from a background in media. She was an award-winning editor at the Washington Post, one of the youngest editors ever at the Washington Post, and she's a genius content strategist. And then I come from a brand building and a business and operations side with a dozen plus years in consulting and then also already having had a business. And when we came together, we saw, we saw this challenge that mothers are being faced with from different perspectives. And so we actually came together and, and realized that together we could build a brand that would sit at the intersection of content, community, and commerce. That we could build a next generation brand that was audience-centered and from that we would grow. And so we always knew that we weren't building a media company, but that we were gonna look and smell a lot like a media company in the beginning as we tried to build this platform. That we were we were building an audience before going into product and going into commerce. And we have really stayed very, very true to that. You know, our strategy was connect, condition, and then convert. And we spent the first three years at Motherly really building that audience and developing that authentic voice and earning her trust and credibility. And doing what we built at Motherly, what we always wanted to build, which I I feel we've done, is build a very woman-centered, empowering, and expert-driven platform for mothers. What would you say has been the key to really being able to build this community? Because I know, you know, owning a social media agency, and I talk to so many clients about the importance of building community, there's a lot of work that goes into it and a lot of people that are required to create that content to build that community. So what has been the key to your success? So one, that genius content strategist I mentioned, you know, having a co-founder who really understood how audiences work and how, how the internet works and how to connect over social, really, we just leaned into, into authenticity. What we, I remember we first went out to investors talking about building something that was woman-centered, not baby-centered, that was expert-driven, not user-generated, and that was empowering and not scary. People would say, 
wait, doesn't that exist? Because it was just so obvious that that this was a need in the market that of course this, you know, someone already did this. And we would tell investors, no, this doesn't exist. And so motherly from the beginning, our voice was very, very fresh. And people gravitated towards that. They gravitated toward something that made them feel good at the end of the article that, that didn't, you know, brush under the rug all of the challenges of motherhood, but that actually celebrated the strength that one has overcoming those challenges and that made them feel like they've got this. And, you know, this was 2015, very end of 2015, early 2016. And the country's incredibly polarized and has been for a long time now. And around that time, election season and all of that. And we we were this oasis, um, you know, continue to be this oasis of, of empowerment that again, makes women feel seen in a way that they hadn't felt seen before. We shared first person stories that were never judgmental, never told you what you had to do, but said, Hey, this is what worked for me. And then we brought in the expert lens as well. And so that was really our starting point was just finding stories of women and bringing them to light and letting women see that they weren't alone, that their, their lived truth could be reflected in others as well. That motherhood was actually one of the most universal experiences in the world and that there's more that unites us than divides us. And that in and of itself was refreshing. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Do you remember, you know, what were those early days like in 2015 before you raised money? And how did you know at what point you actually needed to, to raise to be able to scale? So having just had a business before where I did not raise any venture capital money, I knew how hard that was. I knew that when you time something right in the market, the ability to get to market, the speed to market matters so, so much. So we knew pretty early on that we were going to take on investors. That summer of 2015, before we, we, we did our, launched our MVP, we went through an accelerator called Matter. And so that was really our first little bit of funding. And we spent guess four months going through a very um, intensive design thinking approach, which was very, very user-centered. And that's really the only time Liz and I have even been co-located as founders. And so we worked really closely together during that time to get our voice right, to talk about what our product was, the initial product we would launch with, which was our week-by-week guide to motherhood, that newsletter. And that first year, though, when we did then go out to market to raise, there was a lot of energy and excitement around what we were building. But venture, it just wasn't ready for us. Um, It was hard. It was a really, really hard slog. And I know we'll talk more about that in a bit. But because we we knew we needed to raise and we had a hard time raising, that first year was hard. Very, very hard. How much time did you spend during that first year having conversations with investors? Were you more focused on raising than the actual product itself? You know, raising as as a CEO, that's always part of your job, investor relations and raising. And there is this very brief period in a year where maybe you're not raising or in fundraising mode and it's a glorious time. But yes, I mean, I'd say I spent at least 50, if not 75% of my time on focused on fundraising. And that's not, you know, for 40 hour work week, that's, you know, an 80 hour, you know, work yep. week during that time. And so it is, yes, a full-time job to be fundraising. And I spent, it was just, I think to get our first investor, um, I probably had 80 meetings, you know, talk to 80 different investors in the beginning. What was that first check? How much was that for? Well, we did a, a small friends and family angel round when we knew that we couldn't, we were having, once we were having challenges. And so we raised about 180,000 on that uh, friends and family raise. And then our first real like institutional investor was a million dollar check, which was amazing. But that wasn't until 2017. 
So you first needed to do that initial angel raise, get that traction. And then once you went back out to investors after you had that initial traction, was it easier then? Or did you still face some of the same challenges? I wish I could say it was easier after that first angel money, but it wasn't. This, we were, I mean, let's just paint a picture for you. So I'm in Silicon Valley, got two women, not just women, but millennial mothers. So two younger mothers walking up and down Sand Hill Road, which is the infamous place where all of the venture capitalists have their offices. And we're talking to, you know, primarily male, older male investors, not just about motherhood, but about content at first, which is not inherently venture backable concept. And so we, we had a really, really hard time. We got all of the normal things that you'd expect, you know, let me ask my secretary about this. Let me ask my wife about this, all of those types of things. And at the time, I mean, people were, it was almost like, oh, aren't you cute? Good luck with that. It was really the mentality that building content first, no one saw that at the time. Now jump to the last year when direct to consumer businesses have started to have their reckoning and realize that their customer acquisition costs go up over time, not down those same investors are saying, oh, wow, this is how you build a next generation brand. I understand now. And they're coming to us. So it's sometimes your idea and your approach just isn't quite ready for prime time from a perspective and from an investor. And you have to really have that persistence and that grit and that passion for what you're doing to know to hold on to it and to push forward. Because we saw from the very beginning that so many of these, these D2C brands were getting venture checks off of Santel Road, and then they were driving across town with their suitcases of cash and dropping it off at Facebook and Google, right? And so in essence, the venture capitalists were still funding Facebook and Google. And so we really felt like what we were trying to build was to build the audience first, so that then when we converted her to a consumer, we had this built-in audience already and our customer acquisition cost would be so much lower. And we told that story from the beginning and people just didn't get it in the beginning for us. So no, it was not easier at first. <laughs> I, I believe it. I mean, Courtney, my business partner and I always say like, we're always like a little bit too early because we're thinking so far ahead and we know what the future is going to be. But then these, you know, institutional investors, they just don't get it. So what advice do you have for entrepreneurs who are starting out on their fundraising journey right now? What other advice can you share based on your experience? So many things. Um, I try to once a week do a session with someone who maybe is raising or kind of pay it forward because so many people helped us along the way. And the most important thing is, is to be persistent and to really have that grit and that passion that we talk about. I really believe that success is a combination of, of persistence and passion. And that will take you far, um, truly, because if you believe in your idea and there's legs to it, it's not, it's just like dating. You've got to find that investor that's right for you. And so what I started to learn was, wow, a quick no is awesome. I would much rather have the quick no, obviously, than the long drawn out no, where I'm basically just sharing information about the millennial mother with people that are going to use it for another business, maybe that they're investing in. And so I started to realize that it wasn't a judgment against us when we were not, when we were hearing the no's. Rather, it was just, you're not right. Like, he's just not that into you, right? Like, it doesn't mean that you're not great and things aren't going to work out for you in the end, but this just isn't the right fit. And that's good. That's good to know. Because when you do find the right investors, like we did, they see your vision. You're not actually out as far ahead as you think you were. You just had the wrong, you were talking to the wrong people. And so it's, it's super important to just continue to be persistent and to, to not be deterred. In, in the very beginning, I feel like 
I would to every single person that said no would have a ton of advice, right? And I'd go back and I'd change the deck and I'd talk about this and I would really just, I would drive myself crazy thinking about, you know, second guessing ourselves. And instead, I started to realize, okay, this person's like, thank you. Feedback is a gift, but it is not a mandate for change. And so I'll just take this as, as the gift that it is. If I start to hear themes across a lot of people, then I'll take that in a bit more. But ultimately, I'm just trying to find the person that gets our business and is going to have the same, the same passion for it that we do. That is such great advice. Thank you for sharing that. I know a lot of the women who listen to our podcast are in the process of raising money or thinking about raising money. And they've shared with us that they're always looking for this piece, these types of pieces of advice. So thank you for sharing that in your experience. I know it's super helpful. Absolutely. And then because women are starting companies at a very fast rate now, and they tend to be doing it on in areas that are woman-centered in, in the the products that they're, they're creating, in part because there has been such a lack of innovation for years and years in these areas, and now women are more empowered to make these, to launch businesses themselves. That's wonderful. However, what can happen is what I talked about in the beginning when you're going into investors, that they, they don't take the concept seriously because they don't understand the need for the product, perhaps. I really encourage everyone to focus on the business opportunities to get to the business fundamentals. There are times that I would say, look, I understand you don't understand the need for this product, but let's just look at the business fundamentals here. And in drawing it in, you have to speak the language of the person that you're pitching. And so if it's someone that can't relate to the pain point that you're trying to solve, you've got to go to data. You've got to go to the business fundamentals for it. And, you know, don't, try to just go find all female investors, for example, that understand your pain point, you've got to be able to speak to the business because it's, it's not about, you don't want a handout for someone who's just looking for a female founded business. You want someone who's looking to, to invest in a business that's got real legs and has potential to be something very, very big. And you're going to prove that by focusing on speaking their language and talking about the data and talking about the, the fundamentals of the business and the economics of it. How long did it take you to figure that out? Had you already gone to tons of investors just sharing your vision before you realized, I just need to get to the point of how they're going to make money? Honestly, I, I went through a process of acceptance that there that it was going to be harder as a female founder. It was really infuriating for a while. Um, there was some anger involved on in the fact that I felt like I could see peers, you know, going and having, you know, having a drink and writing their ideas out on a napkin and, and you know, raising, you know, a couple million bucks in a conversation. Whereas I felt we were coming with the data and the business fundamentals. You know, I had a dozen plus years in, in consulting and we knew our audience, my goodness, right? Like we were our audience. So we had all of these extra things that we, we, we had on our side. And it took me a while to realize that, don't, you know, don't hate like that individual, don't hate the player, hate the game, as they say, right? And so we, I did definitely start to, to really, after I think that angel round and into that seed round, start to go more into speaking that language. But I've, just from my consulting days, I feel like that kind of comes a little bit more naturally to me, um, kind of have that acumen for it as well. But it definitely, I had to come, it was, it was a process to come to the acceptance that even if I was doing those things, it wasn't still going to be received in quite the same way. Well, those are all really great pieces of advice and it's incredible what you've already been able to do so far with the raise. Are you going to be doing another raise after this last one you've just completed? Uh, yes. <laughs> As I said, um, you know, I, once I'm in raise mode, I actually love it. I think it's wonderful to go out and to talk about your brand to talk about your vision. I do love the feedback and the conversations and 
I tend to think out loud. And so when I'm pitching, a new idea might come to me, for example. So I really, I actually do enjoy the process, but it is such a distraction from the business and I want to grow this business. And so I say that with a little exasperation because we will go back out in part because we have so much interest right now in Motherly. And when you're a startup and people want to invest, you take that opportunity, even if it is sooner than you initially planned. So I had planned when we raised, we raised the bulk of it every year around Thanksgiving and we really closed it out in January. I had planned on going out about a year later, you know, closing something maybe 18 months out. Coronavirus, we've actually been growing and doing well during, despite all of the challenges and the hardships in the market. But we do want to have more cash on the balance sheet right now. That feels like the appropriate thing to do because the, the future is a little unknown. And so since we have interest now, I will be going out and, and raising a note here on the interim. And then probably, you know, once the market conditions feel really good from a valuation standpoint and others, that's when we'll probably do the, the B raise. So can you share exactly what your monetization strategy is for Motherly? Absolutely. So I really believe in diversified revenue streams also. And I think coronavirus probably showed everyone that that is a good idea. So again, we sit at the intersection of content, community, and commerce, which means that we have multiple revenue streams. The first part of the business that matured was obviously the content. That's what we started with. And so on the content side, we monetize largely through direct media sales to brands. And so we have clients like Prudential and Highlights and Target and Nordstrom and you know all of these other brands. We have those that are coming to us to do campaigns to reach our audience, to reach, you know, we have 30 million women per month that are interacting with our brand in some way through content. And so they want to, to reach that woman. And so we do custom content campaigns with them as well as sponsorships. And those are multi-platforms. So it may be sponsoring our podcast, the Motherly Podcast. It may be doing content on the site. It may be a registry. It may be something related to our shop. Um, So that's one, which is our media business. And that's the largest part at the moment of our business. Um, The second part of the business, which is a little bit on hold right now, but is the direct to consumer side with, which started out with events and in real life events. And so we were getting money directly from the consumer for Motherly created products. We also have classes that we've sold at different points too. And so we're monetizing directly with mom in that way. So that's like the community component. And then on the commerce side, we did just launch in May, the Motherly Shop, which is our marketplace, a curated shop of everything you'd expect from Motherly. Woman-centered, expert-driven, empowering products here to solve the many challenges of motherhood. Often content solves part of your problem, but there's a product that you need to. And so we now have the Motherly Shop, which is a growing revenue stream for us and will be the future, as well as Motherly branded products like the book, the Motherly Guide to Becoming Mama. We have a nursery furniture line that's coming out this fall that we're super excited about. And then we'll have more, uh, as we identify white spaces in the product side, we'll continue to, to launch new products there too. That's so exciting. Coming up. You'll hear how an MS diagnosis helped Jill prioritize her work and life priorities. Hey, entrepreneurs, it's Steph here. As a founder, or really as a woman in business who is creating their own success, whether you're just starting a business or you're scaling it, dealing with finances and money can often feel very overwhelming and intimidating. We have all been there. But according to fellow entrepreneurista and personal finance expert, Varnoosh Tarabi, that fear can surprisingly be very helpful for your future success and wealth. Varnoosh is the host of the So Money podcast and the author of the best-selling book, A Healthy State of Panic, 
She gets candid about all things finance with leading business experts every Friday on her podcast. And she dives deeper into the nine biggest fears that hold us back both professionally and personally in her latest book, including rejection, loneliness, fear of missing out and failure to name a few. She offers a wealth of knowledge and tackles the relatable feelings we all experience about money. So you are definitely going to want to subscribe to her podcast. And if you want to meet Farnoosh live and in person, be sure to join us at our Entreprenista Founders Weekend event from May 3rd to May 5th at the Ritz-Carlton in Orlando. Farnoosh will be speaking and she cannot wait to connect with you. You can reserve your ticket at entreprenista.com forward slash Founders Weekend and we will see you there. So Jill, I know you shared your story about when you first started your business was when you were diagnosed with MS. And I have a very similar story. A few months into starting my business, Social Fly, I was also diagnosed with MS and it was completely out of nowhere. I would just love to hear how you've really been able to, you know, continue to not only grow your business, but thrive as a mom while dealing with a chronic illness, because I know it's definitely not easy. And I have optic neuritis also. So I know, I know the challenges with it. Yes, it was not, I I anticipated a lot of challenges as a startup founder, but this was not one of them. And so I, my first symptom was in fact, optic neuritis, which for your, for your listeners, if they don't know, is when you start to have sight loss, really light loss from your eyes. It's almost like you're looking through a bug screen. Um, that's how it was for me or how it presented. And I, this was three months after launching Motherly, so in March of 2016. And I was so heads down. I remember being on my computer and thinking, I wear contacts, thinking I had gotten concealer on my eye. And I just ignored it for the whole day. And then the next day, new contacts in, and, and it was still like that. And I was like, oh. So I changed it, and it was still there is not normal. You know, I'm a you know mid thirties woman, like this should not be happening. And so I was blessedly diagnosed incredibly quickly. So actually only 10 days from the onset of my first symptom, I was diagnosed and I was able to start my disease modifying medication within another 10 days. And so for me, what I was really lucky, blessed, whatever word you want to use, that I had a couple of things working for me that have made this very manageable on my end. One is I'm educated and I knew how to advocate for myself from a medical perspective and not everyone has that. Two, I had access to amazing medical care and insurance, which are also things that not everyone has access to. And I realized how, how lucky I am to have that. And then three, I had a really supportive network and family and friends that were there to support me. And had I not had all three of those things, my story would be incredibly different. And so for me, I was able to to truly not skip a beat. I was obviously going through this identity shift and loss that one goes through when you're diagnosed with an incurable neurological disease. And that I had that emotional thing, but different people deal with it differently. And I pushed through, I really focused on work at the time. I had two young children. Let's see, I had, I guess, a three-year-old and 18 or 20 month old at the time, maybe even younger than that. And I really, I didn't have time to, to, to focus on. I was really just in problem solving mode. And I remember I was not sure which medicine I wanted to take in the beginning because MS is one of these diseases where the patient has so many choices and so many options. And 
in these moments, you just want to be told what to do, right? You just want to be told that this is the right path. And we all have this decision fatigue with so many options and the such. And I remember my old co-founder, Katie Stewart, I was talking to her about it and I was just agonizing over this choice because also with MS, all of the diseases have bad things on the other side of them. And she said to me, and I will never forget, she said, I have never known you to be anything less than the most assertive, most aggressive with anything in your life. And I would hate to see MS change you already. And and it still brings tears to my eyes because that was exactly what I needed to hear. And I went with the most aggressive approach that I possibly could. And as a result, I have never had any other symptoms from MS. I have been no disease activity with my yearly MRIs. I have not skipped a beat because of that, because I went that more aggressive, you know, way. And so, so grateful. And that's why I'm, I'm vocal and open about it now, because I feel like I wish I had seen my story when I was first diagnosed. There's so many, the internet t- tends to bring out like the horror stories and the devastation more than the, the positive stories. And I want that woman that's being diagnosed with MS right now, who's scared and feels alone. I want her to see me. I want her to see that you can thrive with MS and that it doesn't have to stop you and that you you can leave, leave an even fuller life than you imagined post MS or with MS than you did even before. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. I just hearing your story, it's so similar to, to the experience I had and the same reason why I also talk about it because I was so scared when I was first diagnosed. I went on Google and I started reading all of these horrible stories and I realized, nope, that's not going to be me. I'm going to, that's not my story. Yeah. That's, yep. I, I say that to myself all the time. A good friend who said that to me one time, you know, this is not your story. And you have to, I actually, while there are so many amazing support groups and systems there, I couldn't do it. I couldn't be part of those and see the disabilities that others that were not as fortunate as me to be diagnosed. Even this recently, there've been so many new advancements made. And so had we been, had both of us been diagnosed, you know, 10 years ago, our stories would also be different. And while I'm so grateful that those, those groups exist to support others, I have found that for me, I needed to kind of do this on my own and write my own story when it came to having MS. Yeah, absolutely. How do you manage taking care of your health and making it a priority? Because I know for me, um, go, go, go all the time, even now working from home and starting all of these other other businesses and trying to take care of a little one, I can't stop, but it's so hard to stop. And remember, we still have to nurture ourselves and take care of ourselves. How do you make the time for yourself? In some ways, MS is a gift with that. I think so often women put themselves at the bottom of the list. And one of the reasons I founded Motherly is I believe that when when women and mothers thrive, that's how we have families that thrive. And that's how the world can ultimately thrive and be better. Like women are really at the center of that. But so often we put ourselves last and everyone else's needs come first. And having a diagnosis like MS actually meant that I was forced to prioritize my own health. And so, and I was, others were forced to acknowledge it too, right? And so I eat really, really well. And shout out to Sakara um, because I oh, love yes, Sakara. Yes, um, love <laughs> Yes. So for, you know, the last two years, all of my lunches have been Saqqara and, you know, even out here in Utah, like they're going to be sending me like three meals a day, you know, sometimes to, to do that. And so really prioritizing eating well and putting that number one and then working out, making sure that I am doing that. Um, my doctor, my neurologist said to me, if you do the meds and you eat healthy, 
and you work out truly five days a week, you know, everyone else five days a week is your goal, but you need to be active five days a week. And that's not because you're not going to be healthy right now. It's because we want to make sure that as you age and when everyone starts to kind of, you know, their health starts to decline, that you're at the peak because if this does at some point start to progress for you, you want to make sure that you're doing it from a really solid starting point. And so prioritizing and knowing that those are things that I can do every day and then sleep, 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 which is really hard with little ones sometimes. Luckily, mine are a bit older now to sleep is knock on wood, you know, a bit easier. How many hours of sleep do you get on average? <laughs> um, so I have this amazing ring called the aura ring that I got recently that can track like your steps and it also tracks your temperature, which is great during COVID time. Okay. <laughs> it helps you kind of track your cycle too as a result, but it, it monitors your sleep and it's just a ring that you wear. And so I've been wearing that. So I actually have very good data on this lately. And so I get the minimum is about seven hours. I typically between seven, seven and a half. I shoot for eight, but according to the ring, I'm not, even if I'm in bed trying to sleep, it's, you know, my little awake periods and the such, I'm getting about seven hours. And that's, that's good for me. I find the older I get, I actually need a little less sleep. When I was younger, I needed more like eight. So it's a little less now that I seem to need, but sleep is so, so critical. I could not agree more. I actually got more sleep last night than I typically do. So it's just such a different, it makes such a difference in your entire day and productivity. And I couldn't agree with you more on all of the advice you're sharing about eating well, exercising and taking time for yourself because it's it's not easy, but it's important. It's They're the simple things, right? Like everyone knows that, that those are the three things that you need to do. And again, women just put themselves so far lower on that. But you've seen how much better sleep or how much better you're performing now, right? In your own job and with your children and probably have more patience today because you slept well. Like prioritizing ourselves really is a gift to our families. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to hear a little bit about how your business has changed since everything has happened with COVID. Did you have an office before or was everyone always working remotely? This was an, this is an interesting one too. So Motherly has always been a 100% work from home company. And we, we did it that because we did that that way because that's what we wanted ourselves. Liz and I, as, as you know, between us right now, we have six children, eight and under between the two of us. And we wanted the flexibility of that. We also had husbands that were supporting our careers in really powerful ways over the last five years. And we wanted to at least have the flexibility that we could go where their careers needed us to be physically. And so Liz lives in New Jersey. I currently live in Utah, but you know, also live in California. And so we are, for us, it was really important to create not just a next generation brand, but a next generation business as an employer. And so we've always been 100% work from home. And interestingly, that was something that investors didn't like in the beginning either, right? And now it has been such a gift. They're all like, oh, this is so great. Motherly was out ahead of the curve. You didn't skip a beat doing this. What I will say, and we say to those investors is, while our employees were used to working from home and we knew how to do that, working from home with children home is a radically different thing. And so we have absolutely been impacted by that. Um, and probably more than most businesses, our workforce is, you know, 90% women and probably 80% mothers. And so as a result, they're being impacted. The burden of coronavirus and of childcare falls on mother's shoulders. And so our workforce is being impacted by this more than most. And we've really come together over the last five months now. We've had very flexible hours and, you know, working with people as they were doing childcare shifts with partners, if they had that ability to. We also have had, you know, 
Fridays that we've taken off for like COVID, just mental health days that we've added. This coming, this, this month, we're doing every other Friday off or half day Fridays, depending on what works best for people. And we've really tried to radically prioritize our KPIs as well. We did do some layoffs in the very beginning. We had to make some hard choices. I believe as a businesswoman and, and just as a woman generally, that you make your hard choices fast. You take the pain as quickly as you can uh, because dragging it out is far worse. And so we did some layoffs. We did some shared sacrifice with some salary cuts um, that we'll be paying back and, and made some other shifts you know, along the way that have been hard for us, of course. But that's where, again, that mission comes to play, right? The commitment of our team, the belief that what we're doing matters now more than ever, and that our clients and our audience see that too, is the reason that we've still been able to grow um, significantly year over year. Oh, that's really incredible. Any other work from home tips that you can share? Because I know a lot of our listeners are now working remotely and you're a few years into the experience. <laughs> Uh, yes. So one, trying to have space that is for that, that has a door when there are children around can make a big difference. And so that's one. Two, get outside every day. That's really important. We've been doing this at Motherly also even more now. Schedule walking calls. Um, you know, we're doing a lot of Zooms and all of these types of things now. But there's some fatigue to that. Your brain actually has a harder time processing this, this screen and this person than it does if we were actually talking to each other. So occasionally getting out and doing walking calls can be great. Uh, get the creative juices flowing as well, doing that. And just creating boundaries for yourself and with your employer and being really transparent about what those boundaries are. One of the hard things about working from home is that you never leave work. And I know that that's the case for everyone these days, just because of smartphones and you're kind of always on call of sorts. But there's something about the physicalness of the physicality of being close to your laptop and your workspace that can be hard. So try as much as you can to not have it be in your bedroom, right? To have your workspace be someplace else. And then just making sure again, that not only do you close the door while you're working, but you close the door when you're finished as well. Are there any challenges that you didn't expect while you've had to balance being a mom and also running a business? Oh, I... Do we ever expect anything <laughs> to come? You know, we're all winging this uh, for sure. Just go with the flow. <laughs> Along the way, yes. Um, what I didn't expect was that I was going to have developmentally inappropriate expectations for my children when it came to me working. And so, and that I, that my expectations for them, especially working from home, were not going to sync with what they should be for their developmental stage. And so for in the very beginning, when my children were younger, they, and for a lot of your listeners who are working from home right now, a three-year-old cannot understand the fact that they can hear mom, but they're not allowed to be in there with mom, right? And we're in the, we're in the moment of intense financial pressures um, as a country, as a family. And, you know, people are very committed to their jobs and making sure that they're, they're not someone who's going to be laid off. And so the, the frustration that you start to feel again, you know, with your children being, you know, interrupting or coming in, we all need to seem to give more grace to everyone, but that also includes our children and understanding that they are doing the best that they can. And this is a weird time for them too, but we're the adults. And so I think in the very beginning, I, my expectations were not appropriate for their developmental stage. And I expected them to know, not come to me when they, you know, stay with the babysitter or something when they, when they got a boo-boo, but no, they want mommy and they yeah. know mommy's in this room. Um, 
And and luckily, I work for a company called Motherly, where we understand and are open to that. Um, but you know, doing investor phone calls or doing external calls and things like that, I think I was too strict about that in the very beginning. And so I think that's part of it is just understanding what the developmental stages of your children are and how maybe they change with your business. And they're not always in sync with one another. That's part of it. The other is just as an entrepreneur, you never shut off from work, right? There's, I don't really believe in this work-life balance. I believe in this integration of, of work and life. And while it would be healthier to have this balance where you could really close the door fully, like my brain is always somewhere thinking about, about motherly and the business and whether it's our employees or, or fundraising or our business as a, as a whole. And so just learning how to be really present too. My consulting days help with that and compartmentalizing. I, I can shift from one thing to the other pretty quickly, but if that's not one of your superpowers, finding a way to to practice that, to put the phone down, to stay really present with your children, and that that quality is is the most important in making sure that you're spending time where they feel seen. Yeah, that's such good advice. Do they understand what you do for work now? Yes, um, now they definitely do. <laughs> so my daughters are six and a half and eight and a half now, and they're about twenty two months apart, and they are in first grade and in third grade, and they're so proud. They, at different points when they used to you know, say like, why do you work so much or why do you work? And I would tell them, I work for a couple different reasons. I work one, because I'm good at this. I'm good at my job and I like to do something that I'm good at. I do it because it brings money into our family, right? And helps us have all the things that we need and food and clothing and all of these things. And then I also do it because I'm making a difference, right? And I'm really, really lucky. And I hope for you that you can find a job that does all three of those things for you also. And so I love to see their little budding entrepreneurs spirit. They, they have developed a couple different businesses over the years um, that they've pulled together. And when they talk about what they want to be when they grow up, they say they want to start a business. So they definitely get it now. They understand what I do. And I think they're, they're, they themselves are really focused on the, the mission and the fact that we're helping women and mothers thrive around the world. Oh, I love that so much. And we're actually about to launch our Entreprenista shop. Actually, I think it's the week that this episode is going to be out. So we'll have to send them some of our Entreprenista t-shirts to wear. <laughs> so fun. That's so exciting. Congratulations. Up next, the importance of finding a business partner with complementary skill sets. There's nothing that we love more than connecting with each of you. Our community is growing and we can't wait to get to know you better. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Entreprenistas, where we feature female founders and leaders each week, as well as share exclusive discounts and giveaways from your favorite brands. We'd also love to invite you to join our private Facebook group. You can find us by searching for Entreprenistas on Facebook in the search bar and sending a request to join. We can't wait to see you there. So Jill, I also have a co-founder, Courtney, and one of the reasons we've been successful is because we've really been able to divide and conquer since day one. I've always focused on business development and marketing, and Courtney has always focused on operations and finance. And I know it's not easy to find a business partner who you're super compatible with and that you not only get along with, but it really is like a second marriage. How have the two of you been able to have such a, such a successful relationship? Because we get this question all the time. It's definitely part of the secret sauce of motherly, Liz and my relationship. So I completely agree. Liz and I, we almost say it was almost an arranged marriage because we had this one call and then suddenly we were co-founders together. And we, over the last five and a half years of motherly, we've only been co-located in the same area 
four months. And so we really have, have been apart during all of this. And so to build a marriage and a relationship long distance has somehow worked for us. And I think it does come down to a couple things that I always give as advice to, to founders or someone looking for a founder, perhaps. One you already touched on is finding someone who has really complementary skills to you. Liz and I, there is practically no overlap in our skill set um, in our superpowers. And so that means that we approach problems differently. We have a real cognitive diversity. And because of that, when we come to a conclusion on something, there's a lot of confidence that we've looked at it from lots of different angles and that because we, we see the world differently. So that's one. The second is that building off that cognitive diversity, that because we've had different experiences and different backgrounds, we are approaching problems differently, but our values are the same. And so again, it's a lot like a marriage too, right? And so what we found is that while we had different upbringings and different experiences and all of these different things, our values are very, very aligned. And not just from a business perspective, but at a very personal level, our values are very aligned. And there's some trust that comes from that. There's also some shortcuts when values are really aligned that matter. And so between those two things of having really complementary skill sets and then also having shared values means we are aligned 99% of the time. We may come into something seeing it differently, but when we make it, take a decision, we're aligned. And there, there's very little friction in our relationship because of that. And motherly has benefited dramatically as a result. There's a lot, our relationship did not start as a friendship. It started out as a professional relationship also, where there's a lot of mutual respect and admiration for each other and, and our skill sets and what we bring to the table. And over the years, I mean, she's my closest friend, you know, besides my husband and, you know, a couple of best friends. Like she's, she's really the only person that understands at a deep soul level what it means to be the founder of Motherly. And that is such a unique experience to share that with someone else and to go through life experiences and having babies and, you know, all of these challenges that come along with being a founder um, have made us incredibly close. And so our relationship is, is definitely part of the special sauce and one of the, the biggest unexpected gifts that Motherly has given me. Did you guys know when you first became partners that your values were aligned and how opposite your skill sets were back then? Or was it more of a leap of faith and then it was good luck how everything worked out? <laughs> Definitely some luck involved in it. Um, we like to say that there is like the universe has just kind of conspired for this to come together for us with Motherly. But we, we did know that we had at a high level, like on paper, we had different skill sets. And so that was very, very clear. But the other thing that we've done is we've always been really honest. Like we talk about our egos because let's be clear, like someone who decides to go launch their own business, who's ambitious enough to do that. And there's a little arrogance. There has to be in order to go and lean into to launching a business. You have to think that you can do something better than anyone else in the world. Right. And there has to be almost a little bit of entitlement that like you're the person that can make that happen. And so you've got two strong, ambitious women coming together to launch a business. We've had to be really open and honest about, about that at different points. Like, for example, I'll just give, give two, two examples here that we're open and public about. In the very beginning, I said, you know, based on my skill set, like, I think I should probably be CEO. And she said, I don't know. Like, I, this is my, like, initial idea. And I don't, I don't really know you that well right now. Let's, let's just wait and see how that goes. You know, I just, I can feel my own ego. Like, I think I assumed I'd be CEO, right? This was the conversation. And five months in, as we were in that, in that accelerator, there was a point where we had to put on a form, I think, like who was CEO. 
And Liz said, oh, it's definitely you, Jill, like no question. And so that's how, you know, we talk openly about it. And then with the podcast, the motherly podcast, I mean, Liz is talking to amazing celebrities and powerful women that are changing the world and establishing these relationships. And it's probably the most public facing part of motherly from us as a founder perspective. And I've told her at different points, I'm like, oh, like my ego's feeling a little like, you know, put in the backgrounds of some of this, but I know it's the right thing for the business. You're the journalist, you know how to do this. And so we've had very frank and open conversations about that along the way too, which have been really helpful. And one other thing I'd add is motherly is, we've been very purposeful that motherly is not personality driven. It is brand first. And that we were highly aware that we were two white women, that we are two white, highly educated women living on coasts, right? And we wanted to make sure that every woman could see herself in motherly. And so it's not until the podcast, frankly, that we've really been out at all in, in the forefront. And even with the podcast, we're, we're raising up other people's stories, not ours as individuals. So let's talk about brand building. And I know building your brand has been, it really is what motherly is, and it's been so important to your mission. Why do you think you've been so successful? I think, well, thank you for saying we've been successful with it because entrepreneurs need to hear that occasionally because it's always still a grind and still working very hard. But we, we were brand first from the beginning. I was so convicted that that was what we were ultimately building. We were going to build a brand that had generational longevity because I believe that brands are belief systems and that you know that you've created a brand that has legs when you can clearly and consistently project a brand outward that's one way, but you know that you've arrived when others can reflect that brand out to you and take on ownership of it themselves. And that is what we've seen with motherly is that, that people associate themselves as being a motherly mama, right? Like they, when they think about the type of mom they are, they're a motherly mama, which means that they, they understand their role in this and that they have that self-care isn't selfish, that they are looking at things like positive parenting and, you know, Montessori or creative child-led things that expert driven matters, right? And that they're there to empower and provide more support and less judgment to other moms. And these are things that we've reflected out for a long time. It takes a while to build these things and being very consistent about it. And then now we see it reflected back to us. That's how we know that we've arrived. And that is exactly what we were trying to do. Because once you build a brand that a new mother and all of her vulnerability can trust, that is then you can grow from that. You can do anything from that point. Well, I have to say, and I said this in the beginning when we first started this conversation, the content that you guys create is so incredible and so shareable. I know I'm always sharing it with my my mom friends and tagging them in the videos on, on Facebook and Instagram. And what you have built and are continuing to build is so powerful and so helpful for moms, especially new moms like me. And I'm, I'm so grateful that you did have this vision with your business partner to want to start this company because you are making such an impact. And it's really incredible. Thank you so much. It's, it is the love letters and the notes from other moms around the world that, that make this, even on those really hard days, make this so worthwhile. Because even, even when others start to see that you've reached success, it still doesn't feel that way for yourself at first, right? And so you're still grinding, you're still trying, you're still, you're always doing that, I think, as an entrepreneur, you're, you're always grinding away at something. And so it's great to see that we have touched so many and that we're making a difference. And I mean, I really hope we're changing the world and in some small but powerful way. 
Yeah, I, I definitely think you are. Is there a piece of advice that you can share with our listeners, especially the ones who are just starting out in their business, maybe something that you wish you knew when you first started out that you didn't know then, but you know now? Yes. So I, I realized that in the very beginning, we were constantly comparing ourselves to already successful businesses. And that's critical. That's important because you don't want to compare yourself to the other startup, right? You want to look, you always want to have your sights on something that's already reached success. But the thing that I didn't know at the time or didn't fully appreciate, which I now do, and I now remind myself constantly, is that there is nothing like 10 years of hard work to look like an overnight success. So those companies that look like they came out of nowhere, when you dig deeper, when you listen to a podcast like this or how I built this, you realize that there was 10 years of hard work, of, of blood, sweat, and tears, and grit, and passion, and persistence that took for them to get to that point where they were even on your radar, right? And so while maybe it was good I didn't know that in the very beginning, I do think it is important to remind yourself that this doesn't happen overnight in the vast, vast majority of cases. And that that's why you need to be really convicted and have passion for your mission and, and a connection there for what you're doing. This can't be about money or fame or anything related to that. It has to be about a real deep desire to solve a problem for your audience, right? Or for your consumer and to be commi committed to that because this is, this is, this is a marathon. It is not a sprint. Oh yes, absolutely. Well, my last question for you is what does being an entrepreneurista mean to you? Oh, it, being an entrepreneurista to me means having agency in my life. To me, that is a core part of, of being an entrepreneur and entrepreneurista is, is to have the agency and the ability, especially as a, as a woman and as a mother, to, to have some, some stay in my own destiny and to, to, to model that for my children as well um, feels really powerful. And to, 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 have, to have, it's a way of making a mark on the world as well. So it's having the agency and the ability and the freedom to do that. Oh, I love that so much. Well, Joel, thank you so much for sharing your story, your journey. I know I'm going to continue to to follow along and see all of the incredible things that you do and definitely want to definitely want to stay connected. But where can everyone find you, follow you, and of course, check out the Motherly Shop and buy all of your products? Excellent. Well, thank you, Stephanie. This has been really, really fun. So great to just talk about the journey and to learn more about you as well. So to follow Motherly on Instagram, it's mother.ly. I am Jill Colesville, K-O-Z-I-O-L. And the Motherly site is just mother.ly. And the shop is right there for you. So all the content, all the shop, it's super integrated, making for a seamless experience. And for your listeners would love to offer a 10% off their first purchase so they can use Jill 10. So just J-I-L-L -L and the number 10 to get 10% off their first purchase at the Motherly shop. Awesome. Joel, thank you so much for sharing that with our listeners. And we'll definitely be sharing that all of our social guys and be sure to check out Motherly. Thank you again for joining us. And until next time, I'm Stephanie, and this is the best business meeting I've ever had. You can connect with us at socialflyny.com and follow us on Instagram at entrepreneistas. Check out all our latest episodes at entrepreneistapodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Founders are always asking us, what has been the secret to our success building multiple seven-figure businesses? Do you want to know how? It's our community. We created the Entrepreneurista League for founders like you. Our members have access to everything we've used to grow our businesses over the past 10 plus years. To learn more and get on the wait list for when doors are open again, 
head over to entrepreneurista.com. That's entrepreneurista.com to get on the wait list.